This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ranchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions today. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back. Um, As many of you know, our regular listeners, I've been on the road for the last four weeks at spring training with the New York Yankees and then off to Nashville, Tennessee for the National Football League Players Association meetings, the Mackie White meeting. So it's been uh, an interesting month, uh, to say the least. I, I enjoy it a great deal because I learn so much. It's where I learn a lot about athletes, how athletes are thinking, and how we're starting to try and make sports safer. And as many of you know, that's what I do, sports neurology. And uh, so much has changed. I mean, we already notice when you go to the ballparks, we have safety nets now uh, to avoid fans from getting hit with foul balls and bats that uh, go uh, out of the hands of batters. Here in Hartford at the Yard Goat Stadium, we now have a peanut-free stadium to address the needs of those people who have peanut allergies. So things are changing all the time. Some of the things I picked up, though, you know how uh, in computers, since we're following computer talk, the IBM ThinkPad, right? Everybody remembers that was their laptop. I think Lenovo makes it now. But I don't know that a lot of people know that the ThinkPad was actually a small brown flip pad uh, made out of leather that was issued by IBM to all its employees. And it was small so that it fit into your shirt pocket. And they called it the ThinkPad. Uh, labeled actually the logo is the same as that on the computer and the idea was they always wanted you to carry that and keep it at your bedside so that if you had an idea that came up just write it down just write down a few things and it, it even has inside it where you should call to get replacement fillers for this leather liner and I became familiar with it because for some reason my mother purchased one and I still have it what I found interesting is being part of the New York Yankees organization, uh, they they look for things like that. So they issue small uh, bound pads now. So we've, we've moved up in the world. It's not just a flip pad, but it's a bound pad. It's small enough to fit in your pocket. But again, it's there for you to put down an idea you have or take note of something that you may have heard so that you have it all the time. It has a little slot in it for a pen and you have that with you and it's such a good idea you know how many sometimes you're laying in bed at night or in the morning and you suddenly get an idea and you don't want to forget it so i recommend to patients who say geez i'm forgetful whatever put the pad use the pad it's not a handicap to have to use a pad to take notes and it's something that professional sports organizations have already adapted to So something to keep in mind. We're hearing a lot about vaccination rates. And we've you folks have heard it on this show many times before from me in terms of 
vaccines have become, they are, the greatest innovation in modern medical history. Yet people are resisting based on conspiracy theories, false theories that were proposed and people were punished for them. But now we have increased measles rates, especially in New York now, where people are dying. The people who are dying are infants who cannot have the vaccination yet because they're too young or those who cannot be vaccinated. And people are not getting vaccines, not only because of conspiracy theorists, but because they're trying to reach out and find a reason. The one reason I object to is that people are saying that they are conservative Roman Catholics and not getting vaccines because the original vaccine came from the cells of a legally aborted embryo. The Pope gets vaccinated, okay? There is no religious violation from for doing that. So to say you do it based on religious means because you are Catholic is false. That's a false excuse. And let's get right into it. Vaccines save lives. The Pope came out and said it, that we urge all Catholics to become vaccinated to save the lives of young children. So to turn your back on vaccination because of some false promise or some false hope is wrong. And we really came home, again, back to my work in professional sports. So when athletes come to us from third world countries or developing countries, we have to make sure they've had vaccines. We have to do blood work. Guess what? We have to do it on American players now. So we have now reduced ourselves to the same level of developing countries and ignored all the medical progress we have made in the last century. So there's a sad note. To drive it home even more, we're in the state of Connecticut where some people, some elected officials want to liberalize the reasons for not getting vaccinated. Make it easier to not get your child vaccinated. I find that appalling, if not illegal. So this is not just some national thing. It's not some world thing. It's a Connecticut thing now. And we are putting the lives of young children at stake. Important to remember. This day in medicine, April 13, 1760, Dr. Thomas Beddoes, he was an English physician and a scientific writer. And in 1793, he published Observations on the Nature of Demonstrative Evidence. It was a mathematical treatise that he wrote. What I found interesting about that is that we often talk about evidence-based medicine. We talk about it on this program, and it's often referred to. So, so that we're clear about evidence-based medicine is an approach to medical practice, that's really intended to optimize your decision-making as a patient and as a physician. You want to make the best decision possible in medicine. And you do that by using evidence from well-developed and well-designed and well-constructed scientific studies. That's what we go by to make a decision, not just some harebrained idea that somebody had. So it's important that we understand the things we present on this program are evidence-based. We have evidence to back it up. And if we don't, 
I'll tell you that. But for sure, we are trying to promote that type of medicine on this program. Among those things, the FDA, in a field that I'm involved with, this is concussion care, the FDA uh, put out a bulletin this week. And the bulletin relates to, it's a warning for the public not to use unapproved or uncleared medical devices to help assess or diagnose a concussion. When something becomes common out there, like concussion these days, and it alarms parents and coaches and children, okay, suddenly there are snake oil salesmen out there. And the, sale, the snake oil of the 21st century is we've got an app, right? They've got an app. We've got a, an iPad app. We've got a phone app that's going to tell you if you had a concussion, if, you're, if you should stay in the game or come out of the game. That's not the case. The only approved devices that are used for this and tests that are used for, that, for these are approved because they coincide with being evaluated by a medical professional. doesn't have to be a physician, although it's preferred to see a pediatrician, primary care doctor, or if you're fortunate enough to, to live here in Connecticut, we have several neurologists who just specialize in sports. But it could be an athletic trainer, but some medical professional combined with these other things. So to think that I've got the app on my phone, it's going to tell me that it's safe, I don't need to go to the emergency room, is absolutely false. And finally, the FDA has taken a position on that. With that, we're going to take a short break. My guest here in the studio, I've been really looking forward to this, is Dr. James Bittner. J.B. Bittner is a general surgeon specializing in minimally invasive gastrointestinal surgery, metabolic, and bariatric surgery. So I really want to know, what is metabolic surgery? We're going to talk about minimally invasive surgery. He's at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, and he's going to be here live in the studio. With that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Great to be back. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC 1080 AM. Phone numbers here for calling in 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me while we're on the show at info at alessimd.com. And I urge you all to download the podcast, uh, which has become really great. Actually, it's been really easy to listen to. Uh, Intercom has set that up. You can get that on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. My guest here in the studio is Dr. James Bittner. Dr. Bittner is a general surgeon. He specializes in minimally invasive surgery, uh, specifically bariatric surgery, metabolic surgery. And he's here now as part of the Trinity New England Medical Group at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. JB, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? In other words, your training, um, Sure. how you got into this. Uh, just what's your background? Sure. Um, well, I'm originally um, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, I then uh, completed my medical training at, at multiple different places, including University of Cincinnati and uh, Medical College of Georgia at the University of Georgia, um, as well as Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, before finally settling for a while um, in Richmond, Virginia, serving as an assistant professor of surgery 
um, and the director of the, the VCU Comprehensive Hernia Center at the Virginia Commonwealth University um, located in Richmond. I spent a number of years there doing um, gastrointestinal surgery and, and bariatric surgery as well as hernia repairs before taking the job and coming to Connecticut. Well, welcome. Welcome aboard. Um, what was your attraction to going into general surgery? Because it's not something a lot of people do these days. Well, I think one of the things that's exciting about it for me is that it allows me to be a good internist, i.e. A, a good and complete physician on the forefront, but also make um, acute changes for people who are in, in perhaps sometimes dire need of, of an intervention so that we can solve a problem relatively quickly Um or relatively definitively, and uh, and that is something that I've always enjoyed being able to do. I think everybody's familiar now with bariatric surgery. Actually, it's interesting because the term bariatric is relatively new for us, uh, and uh, I wonder if it's something uniquely American. I'll tell you uh, just a short story. When I was in Haiti during the earthquake, uh, it was interesting. We had a, a shipping container come over with medical equipment, and I was there unloading it at night with the Haitians, and they unloaded a wheelchair that was a, obviously a bariatric wheelchair. And they looked at this thing like it was so bizarre. They actually put four children in the bariatric wheelchair, and I thought that they were like just puzzled to see bariatric equipment. Um, it, are we dealing with a problem, this weight problem, that is uniquely American? Well, it's not uniquely American. Um, the largest proportion of uh, any population in the world that has or that suffers clinically severe obesity is in the U.S. Um, we are increasingly seeing um, weight-related issues in Europe and in other first world countries um, as they westernize more and more and their diet becomes more and more westernized, more and more McDonald's and the like. Um, they are beginning to suffer the same situation that we have here in the United States, which is a, which is a very high rate of clinically severe obesity. Um, now, roughly over 30 to 35% of Americans are considered obese. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, is it fast food? I mean, fast food takes it's, a beating for it, but I don't know if they're just the poster no, child for it or not. It's certainly not all fast food. I think um, there's a multitude of factors that contribute to obesity. Um, certainly genetics plays a role. So family history um, does impact uh, people's ability to, to maintain a good weight. Um, food choices, whether that be because it's fast food or whether it's because um, the types of foods that you're eating are maybe not the best for your overall health and weight. Um, certainly other medical conditions or diseases can predispose to have weight gain. Medications can predispose to weight gain. So there's lots of, and, and even socioeconomic status um, plays a role in, in weight gain. So it's a multifactorial disease. It's not just, it's not just too much McDonald's. Um, before we get into bariatric surgery, one of the things you do is minimally invasive surgery. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that means? Because it, it certainly sounds good. Nobody wants to be radically invaded. <laughs> But so can you tell us a little bit about what minimally invasive surgery is? Sure. So minimally invasive surgery is in some ways a mindset in the sense that um, I, as a minimally invasive surgeon, try to solve whatever surgical problem it is that the patient may have um, with as little, um, in, uh, you know, uh, with as small incisions as possible, with sure. as short as hospital stay as possible, 
with the de- least amount of post-operative pain as possible. And and so to do that, we use different tools. Um, we use uh, robotic-assisted surgery. Um, we use laparoscopic surgery with um, instruments and small incisions to try to be able to do the same operations that 10, 15, 20 years ago were all done with large incisions um, where patients would stay in the hospital for a week that we now do with small incisions in a robot and they leave the hospital in one or two days. When you say small incisions and a robot, mm-hmm. usually is it almost always different types of scopes you're using? I mean, we, we used to, when we think minimally invasive, now we think arthroscopy, laparoscopy, things like right, that. Right, exactly. So minimally invasive constitutes laparoscopy with small scopes. Um, the robotics platforms use very much the same type of uh, uh, small scopes as well. And people are often confused about the robot because they're concerned that the robot is going to do their operation while I'm out having a coffee. Yeah. Um, but that is, in fact, not the case at all. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think people have to understand that there are certain things robots can do better than humans um, from that standpoint. Uh, you know, when you were training, I guess, you know, when I trained, it was in the 70s and 80s. So we didn't have any of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have to stand there holding a retractor and things such as that. So in training now... Do you do a lot of radical surgeries, or is it mostly all during your residency and fellowship doing minimally invasive stuff? The number of cases that are done minimally invasive uh, during residency, fellowship, training, after medical school are significantly increased in number over the last decade um, and continuing to increase. Operations once thought only possible with a big open incision are now increasingly being done either laparoscopically or robotically. Um, you know, major cancer resections are now done minimally invasively. Um, major hernia repairs are now done minimally invasively. So, um, depending on your, your center, um, and the surgeons that you see, um, more and more of them are offering these types of approaches. So it's something that people need to understand and ask, I guess, a surgeon, if you're going to have an operation, can it be done? Can it be done safely? with minimally invasive techniques. So obviously you get out of the hospital sooner. Right. I think one of the important things is to be an informed patient is if you're, if you are um, supposed to undergo an operation, I think it's just wise, especially if it's an open operation to ask your surgeon if, if it is something that can be done either laparoscopically or robotically. And if they say yes, and they're not the one to do it, then maybe there's options for other opinions. Um, so that's that's just a good a way to be a good informed patient. Absolutely, that's that's great advice. We're going to take a short break. Um, you're listening to Healthy Rounds. The phone numbers here eight six zero five two two nine eight four two and one eight hundred nine six six nine eight four two. We're chatting today with Dr. J B Bittner. Dr. Bittner is a general surgeon at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. And when we get back, we're going to talk about what is metabolic surgery. And we're going to talk about new bariatric surgery techniques. If you are obese, how do you qualify? Do you need this type of surgery? So we're going to get to all those points in the second half of the show. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm with Dr. James Bittner, Dr. J.B. Bittner, who is a general surgeon at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, and we're talking about bariatric and metabolic surgery. J.B., got to get right into it. Uh, what is metabolic surgery? So metabolic surgery is a, is a term that is essentially coined um, 
because it's a way that we can communicate with patients that this operation or these sets of operations are not always or necessarily for only obese patients. There are institutions and early data to suggest that um, surgical weight loss operations are also very useful for uh, the treatment of diabetes and other endocrine and metabolic conditions. Um, And so there are institutions now in the U.S. and other parts of the world that are uh, utilizing surgical weight loss operations to treat diabetes, even when patients are not obese. And so metabolic, as a term, describes a broader scope of, a broader use of these operations beyond um, just those patients suffering from obesity. Uh, that's that's an eye-opener for me, because I'm used to, when I hear bariatric surgery, I'm, ta- I'm thinking of watching my 600-pound life with Dr. Now. But, so we talked about this, and, and we talked about the institution was the Cleveland Clinic, who is uh, espousing this for its employees what kind of surgery? What kind of surgeries are we talking about? Are we talking about doing a full gastric bypass? Are we talking about a sleeve or uh, lap band? I don't, what what kind of surgeries are you performing? Sure. So um, for for patients with um, clinically severe obesity at St. Francis, we offer um, primary gastric bypass, all done either laparoscopically or robotically. Um, the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy, again, either with one minimally invasive approach or the other. Um, gastric band in the United States, as well as larger, uh, you know, other first world nations throughout the world, has largely fallen into disfavor. Um, there were significant long term complications with that procedure that required removal of those bands long term. And so um, we at St. Francis really aren't placing those bands anymore because of that. That was a pretty popular procedure. It was because it was quick and it was easy. And um, and large numbers of surgeons, particularly non-bariatric surgeons, could also offer that procedure. Um, and uh, and so it, it started to increase in popularity. But then when the complications arose a decade later, um, it sort of fell out of favor relatively quickly. What were the complications? I guess my experience with patients were they didn't lose much weight. I mean, if well, you lost about part of it. 30 or 40 pounds— yep. Uh, you were a winner after having gone under, undergone a surgical procedure. But uh, what were the, some of the, the problems? Well, certainly failure to lose enough weight was one. Um, uh, easy weight regain or what we call weight recidivism was sure. also a problem. Um, the bands would become um, dislodged or displaced, such as made it hard for patients to swallow or eat or drink or become nauseated. And then in rare instances, the band would erode through the esophagus, um, and that obviously causes significant problems as well. You see, when a surgeon uses the word erode, it's never a good, it's never a good thing. So let, so talking about the procedure, let's move on. I think uh, it, it seems to me the most common procedure now that you guys do is the sleeve. That's correct. It's actually Can the you most. Explain that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the. It's currently the most popular. Um, surgical weight loss operation in the United States, followed by the gastric bypass um, in second place. Essentially, the sleeve is an operation that takes about an hour plus hour and a half sometimes to do. Um, And what we do is we take your stomach, which is largely shaped like a kidney bean, but larger, and we make it shaped like a banana, about the exact size of a full-size banana. And when we do that, it actually restricts the amount of food that patients can take in at any one time, and it also changes certain hormones um, and certain feedback mechanisms to your brain to register that you're fuller sooner, 
um, that you eat differently than you ate before and that your body handles food slightly differently than it did before as well. So when you do this on someone who's not obese, hmm? do you worry that they're going to lose weight and become cachectic and, and malnourished? That, that was an initial worry. And these patients uh, who were not overweight but had severe diabetes were treated with uh, gastric bypass, for instance. And surprisingly, while they did lose weight, they didn't lose as much weight as someone who was you know, clinically severe, had clinically severe obesity. So those patients have now been followed out for five years and, and continue to maintain a normal healthy weight, at least the majority of them. So it's still very much in its infancy um, as far as utilization. It's, there are very few um, you know, employers or insurance agencies that will cover it if you do not meet criteria, National Institutes of Health criteria for surgical weight loss. So again, it's, it's still very much new. Well, let me... When you say you treat diabetes with this, so you're taking somebody who's obviously on insulin, mm -hmm. I mean, because you're saying they're severely diabetic, not obese, uh, doing their usual thing, exercise, eat regularly, but still can't get control of diabetes. I'm assuming that they're uncontrolled even with that. Right. So you do the surgery. Mm -hmm. Are they still requiring insulin or are they off insulin? How 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 much does it treat it? Sure. So- as a frame of reference, in the in the in in a patient who suffers clinically severe obesity and diabetes and undergoes a weight loss operation, um, the chance for a long term cure for diabetes approaches seventy to seventy five percent. Wow. Yeah, but if you regain weight for whatever reason, there is a risk the diabetes comes back. So, in other words, it's not gone forever. It's gone as long as you're compliant with the operation. You're compliant with the the regimen associated with your diet, exercise, and so forth. So you're saying when you say gone, no insulin, no oral hypoglycemics, just diet, exercise, and you've had the surgery. No, when I say gone, what I'm saying is is that patients who say were diet controlled diabetes only gone that are on a, a medication like an oral medication, okay. a large proportion of them also gone. The ones that are the hardest to treat are the type two diabetics on chronic insulin pumps, and they may go from being on an insulin pump to only diet-controlled or wow. even only medicine. Still. And what's amazing about it is that, especially in patients without severe diabetes, you know, just just maybe medication-controlled diabetes, we, we can cure their diabetes in a weekend. So you would do it on somebody who's just on some oral hypoglycemics, having trouble getting, or even under good control. You would still do the procedure and... We would only do the procedure if they also met weight criteria, gotcha. according to the NIH, because that is right now outside of a um, employer-funded program or outside of a study program um, that is not routinely offered to non-obese obese patients in the United States. Let's forget about insurance. Okay. Let's talk about somebody who just wants to get better. Say they have sure. cash, okay? Would you do that? I mean, if you were in that situation, would you have the surgery? If I had severe, clinically severe diabetes and I'd done everything I could but I wasn't overweight, I would at least consider it for myself yep. personally is the gotcha. only thing I can say. Yeah, yeah. no, I think, that's, uh, I think that's important to know. Um, let's get into the bariatric start of it because that's what we're trying to treat obesity in this country. Where do we see the most obesity? So the overall rate of obesity in the United States is unfortunately increasing and far too rapidly. Um, it's 30 plus percent now across the board. 
Um, the largest proportion of patients that suffer obesity are in the southeast and in the Midwest, with the lowest number of patients suffering obesity in the far Pacific coast and New England. Why do we think that is? Is it climate or just cultural? I mean, one of the things people don't understand in the United States necessarily is we have different cultures in here, not just foreign cultures, but regionally, Mm -hmm. I'm learning a lot about the West. But is it cultural? Well, it it may partly be cultural. Um, It may be socioeconomic. I think um, uh, heritage also plays a role, genetics, you know. Different groups of people have settled in different parts of the country, and so the genetics are slightly different throughout. Yep. Um, you know, and even and even behaviors. It, it's um, it, it's a very multifactorial problem, um, from education to money to sure. genetics. They they all play a role. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back with Dr. Bittner and talk about. Who qualifies for bariatric surgery? How do you get bariatric surgery? How do you get considered or a metabolic operation? Because this is a whole new world even for me um, to learn about in terms of metabolic surgeries and how you can be helped with these surgeries. So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and this is the final segment of the program. And we're talking with Dr. James Bittner. Dr. Bittner is a bariatric weight loss surgeon doing minimally invasive surgery at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. JB, who qualifies for this? So if somebody's sitting home now saying, hey, you know, I, I've, I've struggled with my weight my whole life. Maybe it's time I started thinking about this. How, how does – what qualifies? I mean we know the people on 600-pound life qualify, Okay which I still find unbelievable, but how they do it. But who are the other people? Well, thanks for asking. So um, the National Institutes of Health have pretty strict criteria that also all insurance payers largely follow, including the government. Um, And the criteria are, are relatively set. There's something called a body mass index, which is essentially your height over your weight. And there are criteria of how much you have to weigh based on your height in order to qualify for, for bariatric surgery. So if you have a body mass, and most, most um, people are in a body mass index somewhere around 30 to 33 in the United States, give or take. You have to have a body mass index of 35 to 40 or 39.99 um, with one weight-related medical problem. And those things can include sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, etc. Um, if you have one of those conditions and you meet weight criteria, you would qualify. The second is if you have a body mass index of 40 or higher, regardless of whether you have any medical conditions or not, you would qualify. So those are largely the criteria that you have to meet. In addition, though, there's an extensive preoperative evaluation. So that's what I want to get into. Yeah. I mean you got you got to prove yourself a little bit here. That's right. So, you know, the team at St. Francis is actually um, really great about this and I'm and I'm new to the team and I'm very excited to join them. And and they uh, like programs other programs as well have a have a really comprehensive way to evaluate you before undergoing an operation so that you get the right operation for you and that you get the right medical care before the operation as well as after, because both are really critical to the success of the operation overall. The operation is nothing more than a tool. It's like a hammer. 
the hammer is not going to build the shelves for you. It's just a hammer. It's the education and the preoperative planning that you receive, and it's the post-op support and education that you receive that really allow you to use that hammer to build the shelves. So um, we at St. Francis like very much to um, ensure that you have um, you get your heart checked out, you get your lungs checked out. Um, everyone has to see behavioral health or a psychologist. That's an insurance mandate. Um, everyone will work with a dietitian um, preoperatively. When they see the psychologist, let me back mm-hmm. up a little sure. bit because we, uh, I've seen this on these TV programs, right? Yeah. It, there often is some psychological reason, uh, you know, either abuse or whatever, something that's happened in their life. Is that typically, is that what they are addressing with the psychological uh, approach to this? Well, or is it mostly aimed at psychologically getting you to a place where you can lose weight? It's a little of both. So because it's a comprehensive psychological evaluation, it's the patient's relationship with food and how how they use or or don't use it appropriately. Um, So eating disorders and the like are obviously evaluated. But so are personal stressors. You know, a a lost loved one um, and the end of a relationship. All of those things can drive us to either eat poorly don't exercise or something else that can contribute to weight gain um, or, or, or limit our ability to lose weight. So it's really important from a behavioral health standpoint that to not only define the problem, but begin to treat the problem before the operation, months and months sometimes before the operation, so that once you get that hammer, you really are, you have the skill set you need to use it effectively to build the shelves and, and to lose weight. Do you need to demonstrate that you could lose weight? Yes, you do. Um, the number of pounds is not always relevant, but you do need to demonstrate that you've been compliant with a preoperative diet. Um, you do need to demonstrate that you're not going to go out and gain weight right before you have your operation, you know, to go to yep. uh, 14 restaurants three days beforehand. So um, it's uh, it, it is a it is a show of good faith, and it's also a sign that you're making the major life changes that you need to make to be successful uh, after the operation. What's your success rate? So it depends on how you define success. Well, I mean, but I, I, I'm, I'm other than the success of the operation, I'm assuming right. that you're successful completing the procedure. Sure. So the operations themselves are very safe, um, with a very low risk overall of of complications. But as far as weight loss, if we're going to define that as success, um, when we look at a gastric bypass, for instance, and we look at your results at five years, um, people lose between 65 to 75 percent of their excess weight. And excess weight is defined as what you're supposed to weigh, according to some table somewhere, Mm -hmm. versus what you do weigh. And that difference is your excess weight. So... Uh, if you weigh, say, for instance, 100 pounds more than you're supposed to, then af- at five years after a gastric bypass, you'll have maintained a 75-pound weight loss, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, for a sleeve gastrectomy, it's very similar, but only slightly lower. So that that can be somewhere in the 60 to 70% range out to five-plus years. So um, they're very close in their effectiveness, and they are slightly different in why you would choose one over another, but um, both are pretty successful over time. How many people actually achieve that? Don't go back and, and start putting weight back on. Well, the majority of 
uh, folks actually do meet those numbers, um, but there are certainly a small proportion of patients that do not and, and would be considered failures from a mathematical standpoint. There are options for those patients. They may It may be education that they need or more dietary counseling or more psychological counseling to get them back on the right track because these operations um, are still effective. It's just a matter of if you're using the tool correctly. Then there's also maybe issues with the operation itself, and therefore those need to be addressed, and then you can have success again. So it's very important that if you feel that you've had this operation and maybe not seen seen your bariatric surgeon in some time and you're gaining weight, there may be things that that team can do for you to get you back down to a to a healthy weight or a desirable weight. And, and people are required to take vitamin supplementation, obviously, Correct. after any of these operations. Yeah. Um, it, it frustrates me because as a neurologist, I'll see people with neurologic problems that they've developed because they've abandoned their vitamins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, a, it's obviously an important part of doing this. Uh, why would you do a bypass over a sleeve? That's a good question. So... Um, one of the reasons, and again, this is very patient-specific, and so it's not only patient choice, but it's physician choice and it's medical conditions that may cause you to choose one operation over another. But the reason you might pick a bypass over a sleeve is because you have clinically severe or uncontrolled diabetes. As the resolution of diabetes is greater long-term after a gastric bypass than it is after a sleeve gastrectomy. So that's just one example of why you might pick one over the other. Let's get down to it. If you're interested in mm-hmm. seeing Dr. Bittner, I want people to know this is the phone number, 860-714-7128. You can also go to the email, which is bariatriccenter, all one word, at stfrancescare.org. And uh, Dr. Bittner and his team will be happy to evaluate people. Some people Absolutely. may not need the surgery. And that's okay because and, – and some people may – qualify for the operation and after learning about it feel that uh, a medically supervised weight loss program is best for them too and we can help them with that as well so well just, we've, we've just went through the 60 day 60 day challenge right? oh yeah and it was phenomenal yeah. uh, your chief medical officer ran and it was phenomenal dr sayed did a great job with that very cool um, so listen thank you again thanks thank for you coming for and spending me. time and i want to get you back on because there's so many other minimally invasive procedures uh, being performed at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center that uh, I'd like people to know about. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer. Dana Vitanz has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, I'm going to be live back here again. We're going to be talking about the opioid crisis. We're also going to be talking about high-deductible health plans. Next up on WTIC is going to be the Boston Red Sox. Um, those guys are actually still playing baseball in Boston. I don't know. But anyhow, please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can do that by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.